everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Welcome to the in-between times, and welcome to Advent, a season in the faith that has always been an invitation to those threshold moments that transform us. Many of you know we started this podcast to celebrate and examine the relationships between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. But in the year and a half since we first launched this podcast, we are living in a new world. As we enter the holiday season and mark COVID-19's first birthday, we ask you to join us as we listen, engage, and pose thoughtful questions to ourselves and to you, our listeners. We aim to prompt faithful action and invite imagination about a more faithful church and world that could emerge in the months and years to come. We welcome those of you who are newly joining us. We're glad you're here. The promise of hope is that God's witness is hopeful because if I'm honest, I often want something hard to be taken from me and fixed. But what I admit that I need in those moments of want is some sort of community, some people with me, someone who's going to sit in the rut with me. Today, I am joined by the Reverend Chris Romine, pastor of the Common Ground Church in New York City. In this part one of my conversation with Chris, we give a special shout out to our fellow Enneagram type eights. Chris and I talk about how this year has been especially vindicating for us. We also discuss our shared love and disdain of the ways that the West Wing show ties up everything neatly at the end of each episode. And we juxtapose that with some of the Advent scripture texts. Also, as I know you all do during the holiday season, we meditate on some Franz Kafka. What does that have to do with Advent? Let's jump right in. Chris, I'm very excited to have you today on this Advent-themed podcast. Thanks for making time for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. You and I have mentioned before in a conversation that the year 2020 might have been a slightly different experience for those of us (laughs) who are dominant as type 8 on the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. We're sort of known, this is a personality inventory, a way of like understanding people's way of experiencing the world. We both said that like 2020 felt special to us in a way because Enneagram type eights tend to brood and just sort of want to acknowledge how bad the world really is. And then Mm -hmm. 2020 was like this vindication for us that we've been telling you people how bad it is. And then 2020 rolls out. It's like, yes, I'm feeling justified. Yeah, I think that there's a number of veneers and stories we like to tell ourselves in the West and particularly in America. And so I've been watching like a lot of West Wing which is a great show and also annoys me to no end because Aaron Sorkin presents a sort of veneer that I radically reject and think is a betrayal of what America really is. But it's really nice to watch West Wing too and be like, oh, the sort of discourse that we can have. It's like you hope that it would be in actual politics, like the producer of this show. Yeah, but even the topics that they address and the way that they conclude those things are, are deeply problematic. But point is, I think... I don't know if this is my eightness, but I know that my eightness plays a part in this. Mm -hmm. I think our economy is largely a joke, Uh, not just the ethics, but the actual mechanics, including oversight and including things called savings. And I've been yelling about our unjust, but also shoddy house of cards economy in America. 
And that always seems to fall on deaf ears when the economy is growing, uh, when Wall Street's great, when unemployment's down. And then we get like three weeks into a pandemic and the entire economy falls apart and we're a total wreck and we're like approaching 1929 depression sort of collapse. And people are like, I had no idea that this was going on. And I'm not an economist by any stretch. I also just know what it's like to not live with savings and to see when other people don't live with savings and the rest of us are not living. When no one's living with savings, then we all fall off a cliff pretty quickly. So it's been somewhat of an affirming year, (laughs) as terrible as it has. Yeah. I mean, I've been surprised by a lot, um, but in terms of uh, the systems that we think keep us safe, I would say those have come crumbling down for all. And I think it's imperative that we, we have some sort of discourse about, well, how sturdy did we think this fill in the blank thing was? Mm. Our Senate, our Fed, mm-hmm. our institutions, our industries, like the industry of the church is going away. Mm. And all this did was sped up the degradation of the veneer that I think the church was holding up in the West to begin with. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you said about Aaron Sorkin's maybe tying up the episodes about the West Wing in nice, oh, good, we fixed it. The American system fixed the presidency, the administration um, handled the problem, and things are well again for people. We contrast that with the lectionary text for the first and second Sunday of Advent 2020. And lectionary is simply something that the church uses to attend to various portions of scripture throughout the entire Christian calendar year. And it's a three-year period. And the year 2020 takes a look at the gospel of Mark during this period of waiting in Advent. And that's what I thought about when you said the Aaron Sorkin thing. It's like, Mark is the opposite of tying things together in a nice bow. There's a guy, a literary critic named Frank Kermode, who used to say that uh, people want the senses to rest at the end of a story. And that's why we like movies that end well. And we like books that end well for the protagonist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we would say, oh, it was a crummy movie. I thought it was going to be a good movie. But then uh, things fell apart at the end. And I just really didn't like that story. And he was particularly drawn, this Frank Kermode, to the Gospel of Mark, because he said, mm. we want to be pleuromatous. We want the senses to rest. We want to be able to relax. But what Mark does is revs it all up for us. Mm-hmm. It begins in the second Sunday of Advent with the first phrase of Mark, which describes the gospel he's offering to us as the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm. Not, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, or is this mm. is the end, or it's buttoned up. And then it leaves us at the very end with an open-ended story where terror and amazement has seized the people who encounter the empty tomb, and they don't say anything to anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we kind of wonder, how's the story going to pan out for us? It's not tied together. But yeah, I just think growing up and being socialized into what it means to be an American citizen and what it means to be an American Christian, I think that, yeah, the story ties itself up nicely in a bow. We're in Advent right now. We're talking about Advent, but even the Easter narrative is sort of skipped over a Good Friday. We want Um, the resurrection. We want the resurrection. We don't want the pain or or the mystery of Holy Saturday where we're like, oh, shoot. No, yeah. yeah, Things aren't the way we expected. We're we're only into a new becoming of something so far as it doesn't actually cost us anything that we have Mm -hmm. right now on Mm -hmm. us or with us. Yeah. Uh, So I preached on the first week's lectionary texts and I preached on hope which is the theme of the first Advent candle. And I pointed at this text in the Psalm, Psalm 80, and this text in Isaiah, 
as two texts that show a people that are really striving to find understanding of where God is in the midst of a pretty terrible context. They find themselves in less than ideal situations. Um, it's interesting because when we individualize the arc of our life, we hope that we start somewhere and get somewhere else that's mm-hmm. better and more true and freer and et cetera. And while I think that's possible, that also says nothing about the context that we find ourselves in hmm. and the way that that context like gets into us, right? So I wonder how much Egypt got into Jesus. You know, we think of the incarnation as God coming into the world and sort of showing the world what God is, but how much of the trauma of exile was inherited into Jesus's understanding of the world and the way that Jesus traveled and the way that Jesus ate and Jesus' idea of the possessions. Like we sort of treat Jesus's life as objective and sort of static. Mm -hmm. Like that's what God would do. But I wonder if that's what God who was exiled out of his birthplace due to, you know, horrific infanticide and an angry king, Mm -hmm. did that have any play in what shaped Jesus to be? And so when I think of Isaiah and when I think of the Psalm text, I think these are people who are really wondering why in their individual context and broader, God doesn't seem to be present. And I think that as Christians, we really need to do something about that, right? Because like the second that we get out of the individual, then we realize, hey, we might be stuck in this terrible context for the rest of our lives. And that might not be our purpose, but we might be the collateral of a larger arc, right? And then how do I find my sort of individual arc towards more liberation, towards more peace, towards more whatever? And I don't judge people. And in fact, I understand people who don't get there. It's very easy for someone who's got a safe social location to say, make the best out of any situation. Uh, We've also never been in exile. We're also not chased into caves with our enemies ready to kill us. So for those who have, I think it's a lot harder of a sell to talk about the Christian narrative as something that brings just freedom wholesale and liberation wholesale. I think that that is more contextual to where we are than what maybe the Bible is saying and what the Christian tradition comes from. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're viewing our lens through, as you said, this individual perspective of like, well, I'm able to pay my rent and my kids are in school and there's enough food on the table, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It distorts how we think the world is going, as you said. And that particular text reminds me of what Rabbi Elizabeth Bonnie Cohen was saying in our conversation a couple of weeks ago of the Jewish prayers happen in the collective. Mm. There isn't this understanding of my relationship with God, an individual to God. It's our relationship as a people to God Mm. and the responsibility of our prayers and liturgy and rituals to attend to how we are aware of the stories of other people and how they inform our relationship with God. Yeah, I think also at the project that we're trying out Common Ground, I think what has been disruptive to the listeners and disruptive to me too, because I say it and then I think I'm also processing at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so this week was the promise of hope is that God's witness is hopeful because if I'm honest, I often want something hard to be taken from me and fixed. But what I admit that I need in those moments of want is some sort of community, some people with me, someone who's going to sit in the rut with me. And I think that Jesus is presented as a triumphant uh, ruler, someone who fixes the problems that we have. I don't want to focus too much on that part of the Jesus narrative, not least because I'm not totally certain that that's my take. So you feel like that might not have happened yet. 
I mean, like if Jesus were the Lord or the King and fix the problems, like we look around the world and we're like, well, the problems are fixed. Yeah. I just, I also wonder if Eastern Orthodoxy, right? There's this idea of deification, which throws, I think, some, some Protestants off. The fact that we, when we pass beyond the veil, there is still a process within which we continue our sanctification. We continue our refining. We become more and more like God while on the other side of the veil. So I'm not certain that things will get better until we pass to the other side of the veil. And that doesn't make me despondent, and that doesn't stop any work that I do on a day-to-day basis that hopes into being that this Mm -hmm. context around me can be better. But I do sort of have a fatalism that I play with, a nihilism, if you will. I'm going to keep doing this, but it's for my own benefit and maybe a little bit of the benefit of the local, but really it's like not doing anything. Like nothing that I do is going to stop us droning folks um, overseas. And I can't even stop paying taxes without going to jail. And then once I go to jail, I'm definitely out of the game. I can't even do anything about the prison industrial complex. And, you know, like there's all sorts of things that I go with that I think people meet me. I'm glad to have people around me that are like, yeah, that's only one take. And then they give a positive take. (laughs) But also that's like me. I'm going to listen and meditate on the fact that Jesus Christ is coming into the world and how the world gets into him. And what does that mean for my life and my community? Where does your mind go with that? So I deal with depression Mm -hmm. and I've come from trauma and abuse as a child. And I've grown up in a very insecure unstable environments. In my own counseling as an adult, I'm learning that I've actually conditioned myself to choose and search for unstable environments. Probably why I'm a church planter. Yeah. Uh, it's like, <laughs> tell me what's stable about this. But right. there's like a gray area where at least I'm sussing out in my unbecoming and my becoming that there actually, I've been conditioned into some good stuff that allows me to engage chaos in such a way that I can make sense of it and bring some order. And that's good. It also is a result of some pretty terrible, terrible things that I grew up under. And I think there's the way I curb depression, and that's through Kafka. I read Kafka, and I read some Tolstoy. Kafka's got this deep uh, meaninglessness. It is a sort of existential nihilism. Uh, It's a literary nihilism Mm -hmm. that Kafka always plays with, where back to the beginning of our talk, like nothing wraps up in a bow. No stories for Kafka end happily. In fact, they end absurdly. I think Kafka's beauty is that he can nail the absurdity all the way throughout his writing. And then he ends with a profound version of that absurdity. Like the body was just burned and sort of cast aside. This entire character that we focused on in Metamorphosis is just sort of disposed of at the end. Like the main character is just sort of thrown away. Yeah. So what Gregor, uh, for those who haven't read Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis, which is like a short novella um, and Gregor, the main breadwinner of the family, who's like comes and brings enough food into the household. Everyone loves him. He's just a great guy. He turns in overnight to a, a cockroach, right? A human sized cockroach. cockroach. Yeah. Also, listener, the statute of limitations passed. Sorry. Yeah. When we reach the 100 year mark uh, on a writing, like, okay. it's on you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. So, so, yeah. So he just turns into this life size cockroach thing that horrifies the family that he's living with, his parents and his sister. And they start uh, sort of walling him up in this room alone, and they're horrified. His sister has some level of compassion and continues to care for him because actually he can't eat anymore the way he used to. Uh, He doesn't have this sort of hands, right? (laughs) And uh, he's now got whatever cockroaches have. 
and he's stuck in this room and it's this rather absurd dialogue that pans out between him and his sister and his parents where his parents are like you're not making money for us anymore. Like, how are we going to eat? Like, look at all the problems you've put upon this family as a result of this. You're right? no good to us. Right. Yeah. You're no good to us. There's no utility yes. in your existence. Mm. And in every single Kafka book, I would say, I've, I've only read three in an essay, but uh, I would say that the ones that I've read, there's this sort of underlying, if you're not useful you're actually not worth anything. And even if you're useful, you're still maybe not worth anything. You're only worth it insofar as this sort of state or this body can maintain power. And so his family, his family, the dearest of relationships, is the one thing that rejects him because he is now super inconvenient. Meanwhile, he was the breadwinner and now no longer is he. And rather than sort of figuring out a life that includes him, he's disposable. Mm -hmm. In another Kafka, The Trial, Uh, There's just this gentleman who's perpetually under watch for committing a crime that he's completely unaware of, where this sort of messy and cumbersome and clumsy and evasive uh, state, country, government system is charging him with something. He still doesn't know what it is. And eventually it leads to his death. And the continued conversation is, what have I done wrong? And they're like, even you asking that question is evidence that you're doing wrong. And he's like, I don't know how to ask it, right? I think that what keeps me perhaps a Christian is that I choose to believe that there is something good at the end of this tunnel and that keeps me going but I don't want to pretend for a second that this tunnel is enjoyable in the slightest and I think what Kafka actually sort of knocks me out of the cycle that Kafka can knock me out of is Kafka and then following Albert Camus concludes is there really is a complete pointlessness to life There is absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Kafka is bleak in that sense and sort of approaches his writing the way that Sisyphus lives the life of Sisyphus, which is, if you all know Greek mythology, is to push the boulder all the way to the top of the mountain only for it to roll down. And this is done for eternity, right? And life can really feel that way. Well, all these things are so absurd that you you sit back and you read Metamorphosis or you read an account of Sisyphus and you think, well, that's ridiculous. And then the next day you're walking down the street and you're like, no, that's actually (laughs) what's going on. The space between my Christianity and the belief that all of our lives are like Sisyphus is very, very small. Like, I think... My lived experience is not foundationally different than I think a lot of what Kafka talks about. The sort of pointlessness, the bleakness, the absurdity, the profundity. And yet I think Jesus has something to say and do about all of that. Part two with Chris coming up in a few days. So stay tuned and be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss a single special episode. You are going to love our spectacular guests and the moments of reflection during what can be an amazing time of intention and ritual. In the meantime, you can join Chris and Common Ground and learn about their practices and values online on their website, cgnyc.church. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. We're online at newchurchnewway.org. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.